Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Last week, we finished the book of Revelation. And this morning, I want to give you the big picture. Now that we've gone all the way through the book and seen all of the details, I want to zoom out one last time to get the whole message of the book. But we're actually going to zoom out a little farther. Last fall, we spent seven weeks looking at the message of Jesus that's known as the Olivet Discourse. We studied it primarily from Matthew 24, but you can also find it in Luke 21 and Mark 13. The events that are prophesied in the book of Revelation are the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted in those passages. So getting the whole picture will mean hearing once again what Jesus said would happen, as well as hearing the same message in John's vision. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16. Now, obviously, since we're covering part of the book of Matthew and the whole book of Revelation this morning, we have to move very quickly. Um, this, this is just going to be the big picture. So if we hit things that you go, huh, I don't remember that, just go back and you know catch that particular individual message. Occasionally this morning, we will dip in and read a little bit of a passage along the way, but a lot of the time I'm just going to be summarizing, reminding you of things that we've already seen and talked about. So the best way for us to do this this morning is for you to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can see the passage, even though we're not taking time to read the passage. So you keep following along as I'm talking, and the only thing on the PowerPoint until the very end this morning is just Bible references, so that if your mind wanders or one of your kids asks you a question or whatever and you lose your place, you can always look up here and see where we are, assuming I keep up with it. Um, and that way we can kind of move through this whole thing, big picture. It's going to be a little bit longer than normal, not a lot, but a little bit longer than normal. But my goal is that by the end, We've reminded ourselves of all that we've seen, and we have the big picture of what Jesus said would happen and what John says is happening in the book of Revelation. All right, you're in Matthew 16. Let's just jump right in. In this chapter, there's a lot of discussion about who Jesus really is. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. He tells them that he's going to come as the judge. And in the last verse, he says that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Coming in his kingdom, you'll remember, is a way of Jesus referring to his coming in judgment. As he rules his kingdom, he exercises judgment over the wicked who reject him. Jump over now to Matthew 21. Okay, Matthew 21. This chapter, Matthew 21, begins with what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, and he enters Jerusalem while being proclaimed as king by some. Again, the question being asked in verse 10 is, who is this? And this is the heart of the issue. Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah, the king? And the Jewish leaders make their choice and they reject Jesus. Well, then Jesus goes into the temple, and he cleanses it. 
This is in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is communicating that God will not withhold his judgment forever. And the temple, which symbolizes Israel and her worship, will be judged because Israel has rejected Jesus. Then Jesus curses the fig tree. When he inspected the tree, there were plenty of leaves. It had a good appearance, but upon closer inspection, it had no fruit. And Jesus is saying that this represents Israel. He comes to inspect the temple and the people of Israel, and it all looks really good. The temple sacrifices and the worship and all of that, but upon closer inspection, there is no fruit. And the most important fruit, would be their belief in Jesus as Messiah. But that fruit is not there because they've rejected him. The chapter continues with discussions about Jesus's authority and what true repentance and belief looks like. There's the story of the tenants who are responsible for the king's vineyard. The king sends messengers to the tenants, but they are rejected and some are even killed. When the king sends his own son they even kill the son, thinking they'll be able to keep the vineyard. Of course, Jesus is speaking of how Israel has treated the prophets and how they will treat Jesus himself. They will even kill him. And what will the king do? Well, he'll take the kingdom away from them and he'll give it to others. And this represents the church. The kingdom will be taken away from Israel and given to the church. Then in Matthew chapter 22... We have a parable about a wedding feast for the king's son's wedding. Those who were invited didn't bother to come. So many others were invited instead. And Jesus is saying that the Jews who were invited have rejected the king's son, Jesus, and haven't bothered to come to the wedding. So instead, Gentiles will be invited. And remember, by the end of the book of Revelation, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew chapter 22 finishes with another discussion of who Jesus is. Jesus is both David's descendant and David's Lord. And that's only possible because Jesus is both God and man. He comes before David because he's eternal. And he comes after David as his descendant and therefore the rightful human king in the line of Judah. But it's another discussion of just who Jesus is. And the question for those present is, do you believe him or not? Do you accept who Jesus is or will you reject him? And the Jewish leaders will choose to reject him. In chapter 23, then, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders. In other words, things have escalated to the point where they seem to be settled in their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus lets them know that this will mean judgment. At the end of the chapter is a crucial passage, verses 37 and 38. Jesus laments over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Here Jesus identifies Jerusalem as the city that rejects him. And their house is both their descendants, you know, the, the house of Israel falls. And the house is the temple 
The temple will be left desolate. God will abandon it and it will face judgment and fire and destruction because Jerusalem has rejected Jesus. Well, then we come to Matthew 24. In the first two verses, we see that Matthew carefully tells us that Jesus left the temple. The disciples pointed out the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is clearly predicting the destruction of the temple. Then in verse 3, the disciples ask him, Well, <clears throat> tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples are asking, when will the temple be destroyed? And they understand, because of what Jesus has been teaching, that this destruction of the temple will be a sign that Jesus has come in judgment. Jesus will take the throne as the Messiah and King, and he will come in judgment on those who reject him. And what will that judgment look like? It'll look like the temple being destroyed. And the disciples are asking for a sign, so they will not in any way mistake that this has happened. They also connect this event with the end of the age. In other words, the Jewish age, the, the old covenant era. It's coming to an end, Jesus has taught them, with this judgment. Because the Jews have rejected Jesus, their Messiah, Jesus will come in judgment. Now that's the context for everything else that Jesus says in Matthew 24. So if we look then at verses 4 through 13, Jesus gives various signs of conflict and difficulty. And those are things that we see happening in, the hist in history in the years between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. Remember, A.D. 30 is when Jesus was crucified, rose again. And A.D. 70 is when the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem happened. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And we saw that the New Testament teaches that this did happen. We don't have time to go back over all the evidence, but we looked at eight different New Testament passages that show that the gospel went to the whole world, as Jesus said. Let me just summarize. The book of Acts tells the story of the gospel going from Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, even all the way to the very heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself. And the word for world here that Jesus uses is the same word as when Matthew says in the beginning of his gospel that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Well, Augustus wasn't taxing Australia or Canada or China, the world means the Roman Empire, the known world for the people in that empire. And that's the same way Jesus is using the word here. The important thing is that what Jesus predicted would happen did happen before 70 AD. Then verses 15 through 28, Jesus describes what will happen when the Roman armies gather outside Jerusalem to destroy the city and the temple, he calls this the abomination of desolation. Now, when Luke writes his version of the story, Luke's writing for a, a Gentile audience, and so he uses a little bit different language. And Luke just calls this, when you see the city 
of Jerusalem surrounded by armies. The Gentile Roman army entering the city and the temple and destroying it because of the unbelief of the Jews will be an abomination. You have pagan people entering the holy place of the temple. And it will leave the city and the temple desolate, destroyed and empty. And Jesus warns his followers. He says, hey, when you see that this is about to happen, it's time to get out of Dodge. Flee to the mountains. But remember, as we read this, this is local. You can escape this by running to the mountains of Judea. This is not a worldwide tribulation. This warning just has to do with Jerusalem and its surroundings. And we know from history that Jesus' followers did exactly what he said. They escaped the city. Most of them ran to the city called Pella. Then in verse 29, Jesus tells them what will happen after that time of tribulation. And in fact, Jesus specifically says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says immediately? Well, he means immediately, right away. So the tribulation of the days is the time leading up to AD 70, culminating in the Roman army surrounding the city of Jerusalem and the Christians fleeing the city for safety. And immediately after that, what does Jesus say will happen? He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we saw as we studied this, this is standard Old Testament apocalyptic language describing nations or political powers being defeated. It's the same language that's used to describe Egypt and Babylon amongst others when they fell. And here it means that the powers of Israel Jerusalem, the temple, the religious leaders will be defeated and destroyed. And the other thing that Jesus says will happen immediately after the tribulation of those days is that there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So here we have a coming of Jesus, the Son of Man, and we've seen before that this coming is speaking of his coming in judgment. Just like the Old Testament often speaks of God coming in judgment or coming on the clouds when he's coming to judge a nation. And we read, if we read verse 30 very carefully, we see the translators have changed the word order here and made things a little bit confusing. What the verse says in the original, in the Greek, is, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So the sign, catch this, the sign is not that people look up into the sky and see the Son of Man in the heavens. The sign, whatever it is, is a sign that the Son of Man is now in heaven. In other words, that he's on his throne. The sign is a signal that lets Jesus' followers know Yes, Jesus, the Son of Man, is now in heaven. He's on his throne. He's ruling and reigning. And what is the sign itself? Well, in the context, the sign is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So when Jesus' followers see that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, that's the sign that tells them Jesus is on his throne, just like he said. He's ruling and reigning. He's judging Israel. That judgment falls on Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple because they've rejected Jesus. And finally, 
we need to note that in verse 34, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that couldn't be more clear. Jesus is saying that the events that he is prophesying will take place within a generation. And in scripture, a generation is 40 years. Jesus says this in AD 30 and in AD 70, 40 years later, a generation, these events take place and Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled. So the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, is Jesus' prophecy that because Israel has rejected him as Messiah, he will come in judgment on them. And that prophecy is fulfilled in AD 70, as Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and the old covenant Jewish age comes crashing to an end. That's the introduction. Now, turn to the book of Revelation. All right, Revelation chapter 1. And while you're turning there, Revelation 1, let me just say it again. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, provides the necessary background to understand the book of Revelation. Most of the imagery in the book of Revelation is taken from the Old Testament. We've seen that over and over, week after week. But the message is essentially the same message that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus made it abundantly clear that the entire Old Testament points to him. So when you see John going back to the Old Testament and grabbing images there to describe what Jesus said would happen, that's entirely appropriate. It's, it's how this whole thing hangs together consistently as one unified message. All right. Revelation 1. In the first chapter of Revelation, John introduces the book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's focused on him. John reveals in verse 5 that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. That clues us in to the legal nature of this book. Jesus is presenting a legal claim against Israel for their unfaithfulness. He's divorcing them because of their spiritual adultery. They have rejected him. And he's presenting the righteous legal case for their divorce. And Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's ruling and reigning on the throne in heaven. And he rules over the kingdoms of men. He will pass judgment on the kingdom of Israel because they have rejected him. Verse 7 says, he is coming with the clouds. Again, like we saw in Matthew, that's Old Testament language for God coming in judgment. And we have some very important time markers here too. Verse 1, this is a revelation of things that must soon take place. Verse 3, the time is near. Verse 7, he is coming. John is writing this in the mid-60s, just a few short years before A.D. 70. So what we read in Matthew 24 that took place in A.D. 30, Jesus is, pro Jesus is prophesying that these things would take place within a generation. And now John comes almost at the end of that generation with the same message saying that these things must soon take place. Then at the end of chapter 1, we have an introduction to the seven churches, the, the seven letters to the seven churches. And those seven letters to the churches are in chapters 2 and 3. We won't take much time on these other than just to remind ourselves 
that these seven churches are real churches in Asia Minor. The message that Jesus sends to each one of them is specific to that church, to their situation. But the overall message, when you look at all seven letters, is be faithful. Yes, you're facing opposition, and it's about to get worse, but Jesus is on his throne. He will judge his enemies, so be faithful, endure, persevere. In chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, then, John has a vision of the throne room in heaven. The description in chapter 4 is probably the most symbol-heavy description of anything we have in the book of Revelation. Without going through all of those symbols again, I'll just review some of the most important points. First of all, the language echoes Old Testament language of times when God's glory appeared to break into our world, like at Mount Sinai or in Daniel's visions. Second, we're being given a glimpse of the heavenly reality. The earthly reality is a dim reflection of the true heavenly reality. The heavenly reality is perfect, whereas the earthly reality is marred by sin. Remember how Jesus teaches us to pray about his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's already being done in heaven. We want to see that happen now here on earth. As Christ's kingdom grows in the earth, the earthly reality will become more like the heavenly reality. A better reflection of it. Third, much of the throne room scene that's there in heaven calls to mind the arrangement of the tabernacle and the temple here on earth. And even that is a backwards way of saying it because the design God gave of the tabernacle and the temple is based on the heavenly reality. Even the way the tribes were arranged to camp around the tabernacle mirrored the arrangement of the 12 constellations of the zodiac in the heavens. Walking into the tabernacle would have been like walking into the throne room of heaven. The furniture of the tabernacle was modeled after the heavenly realities. But we also saw there were two main differences. Two parts of the tabernacle on earth that are missing in the description in heaven. First, there's no bronze altar in the heavenly temple. That's because the bronze altar represents the earth. And it's the place of animal sacrifices. There's no need for that in the heavenly temple. Because Jesus Christ is there as the final perfect sacrifice already given for sin. There's no more need for animal sacrifice. And number two, there's no need for the table of showbread that we have in the tabernacle. The 12 loaves of bread in the holy place are resting in the light of the golden lampstand. That represented the 12 tribes of Israel resting in the presence of God. But because this book of Revelation is a divorce document, God's people have been removed from God's presence. They've rejected the sacrifice that God has brought, his son, Jesus. And because they've rejected the sacrifice, there's no sacrifice for their sins, and they are not allowed in his presence. If chapter 4 describes the setting of the heavenly throne room, Chapter 5 describes the action that takes place in that setting. The action makes clear that this is a judgment scene. It's a legal scene. 
And we see in the first five verses that at God's right hand on the throne, there is a scroll that no one in heaven or on earth is able to open. John begins to weep because of this, but one of the elders around the throne says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, like the elder says, John looks in order to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Well, this is Jesus. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's Israel's rightful king, the Messiah. And he's the lamb, the lamb of God, slain for the sins of his people. Slain by Roman soldiers, yes, but as scripture makes clear, put to death at the hands of the Jews who rejected him. And the lamb is able to open the scroll. What is the scroll? Well, it seems that it's the legal case against Israel. In other words, it's a divorce document. It lays out the case against Israel, her unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery, her rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. And it also is the end of the old covenant because of that. And it's the replacement, the new covenant. So it tells us about the church as well. And when Jesus takes the scroll, the elders sing in honor to the Lamb. And one of the things that it says is that the people that Jesus is now gathering to himself, the people that will replace divorced Israel, are from every tribe and language and people and nation. They will become the kingdom of Christ. In chapters 6 through 8, then, the seven seals on the scroll are progressively broken open. Each seal reveals a judgment of some kind that comes on the land of Israel. These are the precursors to the final judgment that falls in AD 70. And as the first six seals are opened, we find that they correspond exactly in order to the judgments described in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse that we saw earlier. And the six seals include the Roman invasion of the land, the civil war that happens within Jerusalem, the economic hardship and suffering that comes on Israel, death and suffering in Jerusalem, the martyrdom of the saints, the fall of the ruling class in Israel. And after those first six seals, there's an interlude before the seventh seal is opened. During that time, we have the 144,000 who receive the mark of the Lamb. There's 144,000 because that's a thousand, which is symbolic for a large amount, times 12, times 12. 12 Old Testament tribes, 12 New Testament apostles, and all of the people that they represent. So 144,000 just represents the full number of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Then in the second half of chapter 7, we see that this is actually a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They are the ones who have been redeemed by the Lamb, and now they're seen to be worshiping in his presence. The Lamb is their shepherd. They drink from the springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, this is a little preview of what we see at the end of the book in the New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, the church. In chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken open. Remember, it's Jesus that's opening the scrolls. Jesus is the one executing judgment on Israel. 
And when that seventh seal is opened, we see that it contains seven more judgments, seven trumpet judgments. And this comes, as we see, as an answer to the prayers of the saints. Well, in chapters 8 through 11, one by one, the trumpet judgments sound, and we see that they echo some of the plagues in Egypt that God sent on that land as he judged Egypt and redeemed his people out of it. Where Israel was being established in the redemption from Egypt, now they are being disestablished as those plagues fall on them. Israel, in her unbelief, has become Egypt, and she's being judged accordingly. The first trumpet comes against the land, which we saw usually indicates particularly the land of Israel. The second trumpet brings judgment against the temple. The mountain is thrown into the sea like Jesus warned. The third trumpet reverses what happened in the wilderness at Marah, and now wormwood falls into the water, making it bitter. Israel faces God's judgment rather than his protection and provision. The fourth trumpet is, again, the language of decreation. Society and its rulers being torn apart in God's judgment because they've rejected Jesus. And then in chapter 9, we find the fifth and sixth trumpets. In the fifth trumpet, we see that Satan is given power to open the abyss, and the demons come up and they haunt Jerusalem. At each stage, the tribulation in Jerusalem is getting worse, and now it's aggravated by this demonic invasion. When Jesus had come to earth, one of the things that he did was to cast out demons. His kingdom had arrived, and he began cleaning house. But now, because Israel has rejected him, he allows all hell to break loose in Jerusalem. And the result, as we see in the history books of the time, is a kind of national insanity results in all kinds of perversity in the city, from cannibalism to cross-dressing cross and transgenderism. The sixth trumpet announces the invasion of the Roman army, including allies from other lands, described as if they are dragons attacking. In chapter 10, we have a mighty angel holding a scroll. Well, who has the scroll? This is Jesus. And we see that there are things that are sealed up, things we don't get to know. But there is also the fulfillment of the mystery of God. And typically, when the New Testament talks about the mystery, it's usually referring to the church. The church is the people of God in God's plans from all of eternity, but not revealed until the time of Christ. John is told to eat the scroll, and he finds that it's both sweet and bitter. This represents that the scroll is both mercy and judgment. It's mercy for the followers of Jesus, but judgment for Israel. As the old covenant comes to an end, it's judgment for Israel. But the new covenant is established. It's mercy for all of Jesus' followers, Jew or Gentile, people from every nation. In chapter 11, the temple area is measured. The temple itself is marked out for protection, but the surrounding area is trampled. Well, the New Testament teaches that Jesus and all who are in him, the church, are the true temple. They will be protected, but those outside will be judged. So who in this vision is on the outside? It's the nation of Israel, who, spiritually speaking, have shown themselves to be Gentiles. They will be judged. 
Then in chapter 11, verses 3 to 14, we have the two witnesses. These are the Old Testament law and the prophets with their ministry of the word now carried on through the church. This is an echo of the prophecy found in Zechariah. The two witnesses establish the legal guilt of Israel for her rejection of Jesus. They accomplish their purpose, and then they are martyred. But they're raised to life again. God's people often gain victory through suffering and death because that's how Jesus did it. Then the seventh trumpet is sounded. And this final trumpet represents the final judgment against Jerusalem and the temple. The temple is destroyed. Those who have died in the Lord are vindicated, while the Jews who rejected Jesus are destroyed. The earthly temple has fallen. Heavenly temple is opened. And the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant is complete, as Jesus now reigns in his kingdom. And all of this echoes the prophecy of Daniel of the stone cut out without human hands that becomes a mountain filling the whole earth. It represents the kingdom of Christ. Now, when we get to chapter 15, we will see seven plagues or seven bowls. But before that, in chapters 12 to 14, we find another interlude with things like beasts and dragons and other characters. In chapter 12, we find a woman that represents ideal Israel, all of the true people of God. She gives birth to Jesus, and the dragon, Satan, attempts to devour him. We see this happen all through Scripture, but particularly in the Gospels, like when Herod slaughters the infants in Bethlehem, or when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. But the child, Jesus, is caught up to the throne. This is the victorious ascension of Jesus. The woman flees to the wilderness. This is the followers of Jesus fleeing Jerusalem, just like Jesus warned them to in Matthew 24. Then we see Satan thrown down to the earth as Jesus defeats him. The beginning of the kingdom of Christ is announced. Satan turns his attentions to the church instead, but the church flies to the wilderness for safety, and instead Jerusalem takes the brunt of Satan's wrath. In chapter 13, we saw two beasts, a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. The beast from the sea is the Roman Empire, personified specifically in Nero Caesar. That's later confirmed in chapter 17, when John even places him in the chronology of the emperors in exactly the right place. Nero persecutes the church. But the message Jesus gives through John is that God calls his people to endurance and faith. The second beast, the beast from the land, is later called the false prophet. This is apostate Judaism, the Jewish religion that has rejected Jesus. And they too persecute the church, the followers of Jesus. And still today, we have many religious or ethical groups and teachings that appear righteous, but in reality are opposed to Christ and his word. In this 13th chapter, we also find the mark of the beast. This is in contrast to the mark of the lamb. The mark of the beast is simply those who have chosen loyalty to those who oppose Jesus. Their lives are marked by that choice. <clears throat> in chapter 14, we find a contrast to what was in chapter 13. Here we have the lamb standing with his people, the 144,000, on Mount Zion, 
the Lamb is Jesus. The 144,000 are the full number of the people of God, marked with the mark of the Lamb. And they are on Mount Zion because they are in the presence of the Lamb and they are under his protection. Three angels come then with messages. First, a message of the eternal gospel given to every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. Second, the announcement that Babylon has fallen. And we'll later see that Babylon represents Jerusalem and Israel's leaders in their rejection of Jesus. The third message is a message of judgment to fall on those marked by the beast, those who reject Jesus. And then there's another call for the saints to endure. And finally, at the end of chapter 14, we have a double harvest. The harvest of the land is a harvest of grain. It's the wheat that grew up with the weeds in Jesus's story. It's the 144,000 who were just previously called first fruits. This is a positive judgment separating out those who are loyal to Christ. The harvest of the vineyard the harvest is the harvest of the nation of Israel. They are about to face their final judgment. These grapes will be trodden outside the city, symbolizing the blood that will flow as they face this judgment. In other words, those who have refused the sacrificial death and blood of Jesus will find that they face that judgment themselves. While those who accept Jesus' death in their place, his blood shed for them, will escape the judgment because the lamb has died in their place. Then in chapters 15 through 18, we see the final round of judgments. Chapter 15 gives us the song which the redeemed are singing. It's the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's a song of celebration for the deliverance that God is achieving for his people. It's modeled after the song of Moses, which celebrated God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And now God is delivering his people from those who oppress them once again. It's appropriate for God's people to celebrate God's judgment on the wicked. In chapter 16, then, we find the bold judgments, and this final round of judgments is given in language that echoes the plagues in Egypt. The judgments fall on Israel and Jerusalem and the temple, and toward the end of these judgments, the forces gather for the battle of Armageddon. Well, Megiddo in the Old Testament was a place of several important battles, and the name Megiddo became proverbial for defeat and destruction. Here it signifies defeat and destruction that will come on Jerusalem and the temple. Mourning and weeping that will come to those who have crucified Christ. As the seventh and final bowl judgment falls, it's the final straw for Jerusalem. The city is split and destroyed and the announcement comes that it is done. The judgments have been completed. Israel has been judged for her rejection of Jesus. Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. In chapter 17, we find a graphic description of the wickedness of Israel in her rejection of Jesus. John is basically <clears throat> recounting the last two bowl judgments from the previous chapter. The city of Jerusalem is compared to a prostitute riding the beast of the Roman Empire and drunk on the blood of the saints. They make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb conquers them all. As the chapter finishes, 
The angel explains that the beast and the other rulers that had been allied with Jerusalem using her will turn on her. They will shame her and destroy her. It's another way of describing what happens. Roman armies with the Roman allies surround the city of Jerusalem in the judgment of A.D. 70. In chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, we find the fall of Babylon, or in other words, the fall of Jerusalem. Again, from another angle, we're seeing this final judgment that falls on Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. In the first eight verses, the imminent judgment of Jerusalem is announced, and the church is called to come out of her. Then in verses 9 through 20, there's mourning from her allies as Jerusalem is destroyed, but there's rejoicing from the faithful people of God. Then in verses 21 to 24, there's a second announcement of judgment, showing that this judgment will be complete, total, and final. And as chapter 19 opens, we find rejoicing in heaven at the judgment of Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> at this point, the focus changes from the judgment that falls on Israel to the establishment of Christ's kingdom instead. From the end of the old covenant to the establishment of the new covenant, things are much more bright and positive from this point on to the end of the book. In chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, we find the marriage supper of the Lamb. This marriage supper is the celebration of the new covenant. Remember, Israel was being divorced, judged, because of her unfaithfulness. That's the ending of the Old Covenant. But something new replaces the Old Covenant. It's the New Covenant, the new people of God, the church, made up of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is just like the story that Jesus told in Matthew 22. The story of the wedding feast that the king is throwing for his son. Remember, those who were originally invited refused to come, even after the king repeatedly sent his servants to tell them that everything was ready. They treated the king's servants shamefully and even killed some of them. And this, of course, represents how Israel treated God's messengers, the prophets. What did the king in Jesus' story do? Well, he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's Jesus' warning that God is going to burn Jerusalem because Israel has rejected the prophets and refused Jesus himself. Then the king invited a bunch of outsiders to come to the wedding feast. That's the kingdom of Christ going to the nations people from every tribe and nation and language. And the message of the marriage supper in Revelation 19 is that those who have faith in Jesus are invited to the marriage supper and they are invited to become the bride of Christ. That marriage supper is ongoing today. <clears throat> that invitation stands open. Then in the rest of Revelation 19, we see Jesus going out to war. He rides out and is victorious. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He conquers by the power of his word. And all of those who had stood against him are judged, including the beasts. But the armies of heaven, all those who have faith in Christ, 
go out to war following him, extending his victorious kingdom by the power of his word. Chapter 20 begins with Satan being bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And this happens in the ministry of Jesus, and it continues today. Satan is chained. He's still active, but he's limited in what he's allowed to do. And the primary limitation is that he can no longer deceive the nations. Under the Old Covenant, only the nation of Israel followed God in any significant way. The rest of the nations were under the deception of Satan. But now that Christ has established his kingdom, that kingdom is growing to encompass the nations. Jesus told his followers to disciple the nations. The gospel is expanding throughout the earth. Jesus said his kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows into a large plant slowly over time. It's like yeast in a lump of dough that slowly affects the whole lump. It's like the stone in Daniel's vision that eventually becomes a mountain filling the whole earth. Ezekiel said it's like a river that flows out from the throne of God. It starts as a small trickle, but eventually it becomes a great river that affects the entire earth. All of that is possible because Jesus has bound Satan so that he can no longer deceive the nations. In verses 4 to 6, of chapter 20, we have the first resurrection. This is the spiritual resurrection of all believers that's brought about when they hear the gospel and the Spirit of God gives them new life. In other words, this describes those of us who have faith in Christ. We've been spiritually raised to new life in Christ, and we now rule and reign with him. That means that under Christ, we advance his kingdom by promoting his rule, his word, his law. And chapter 20 finishes with the great white throne judgment. Even though Christ's kingdom expands throughout the earth, that doesn't mean that every single person has faith in him. There are still holdouts who rebel against him. <clears throat> and just before Christ returns, Satan is allowed to deceive the nation one last time. All those holdouts band together in opposition to Christ. Just like in the days of Esther, when the enemy sought to exterminate God's people once and for all, so here Satan seeks to destroy God's people. But Christ returns and finishes the work of putting all of his enemies under his feet. So at the climax of the millennium, when Christ's kingdom has spread over the whole earth, when he returns triumphantly as king, he puts down this final rebellion. And he raises all men, overcoming even the final enemy of death itself, raises all men for that final judgment. The devil and the beast and the false prophet are all thrown into the lake of fire for eternal punishment, and all those who sided with them will join them there. But all those who are loyal to Christ are raised to eternal life. They will spend eternity with him. John says that the books were opened and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So all of those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life are granted eternal life. These are the ones who believed in Jesus. But everyone else is judged by what's in the books, the record of their deeds. 
That verdict has already been given all throughout Scripture. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life joins the devil in the lake of fire for eternity. In the final two chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, we find a description of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. This is a vision of the church, the new creation, something that is a growing reality now and will one day be fully realized. This new reality, the new creation, the new heaven and new earth is characterized by God dwelling with his people. They're in his presence. Then he describes the new Jerusalem, which is another way of looking at the same reality. <clears throat> the angel says to John that he'll show him the bride, the wife of the lamb. And when John looks, he sees the city, the new Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem is the bride, the church. And the way John describes it includes all of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. There's no temple because the temple is the whole thing. The whole people of God is the place where God dwells, his temple. No one may enter whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. But John describes kings of the various nations entering to bring the, their glory and honor to the Lamb. Well, that means those kings must have their names written in the book of life. They are Christian, Christian kings of the nations. So the nations continue to exist as nations. But they are discipled nations whose leaders lead the nations to walk in the light of God's word. Then in chapter 22, John describes the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The tree of life grows there too. This is describing a new Eden, paradise restored. This is where things are heading. This is what Jesus is doing. He's creating paradise again, where his people will be in his presence with no more sin or suffering. This is the Christian vision of the world and of what God is doing in the world and what, what Christ will one day finally bring about. John finishes the book by again emphasizing that all the things that he's written about in this book are about to take place. The time is near. This is happening soon. In other words, as John writes in the mid-60s AD, these things will find their fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Then he emphasizes again the importance of choosing sides. Judgment is coming. Jesus is the judge. Israel is about to face judgment. One day we will all face judgment by Christ. John's closing exhortation is to come. Come find satisfaction in Christ. Find what you need, what you long for, and find it at no cost to you. The Lamb of God has paid the price for all of his people. So come and drink the water of life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that this has been long and it's been like drinking from a fire hose. It's a whirlwind tour of this book. But I just want to finish off with this question of where it leaves us. And let me give you three brief answers to that, three thoughts. And I'm going to keep it really simple. Number one, Jesus judges. There is judgment all throughout this book. 
Jesus is introduced as the Son of Man with eyes like fire because he sees right to the heart of things. He judges the churches and their faithfulness. He judges Israel as those who have rejected him. He judges his people who are faithful in following him. He judges the devil, the beast, the false prophet. He judges the religious leaders. And he judges all men on the final day, some to eternal life and some to everlasting punishment. Jesus judges. And Jesus will judge you. What will he find when he judges you? Will he find faith? Will he find someone who believes in him? Or will he find someone who is standing in their own failed righteousness? Someone who, like the Jews, has rejected him as Savior. This most basic choice is written all through the book of Revelation. Don't leave this book behind without believing in the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus wins. Even as the book of Revelation unfolds, there are plenty of dark days for God's people. There are days when it seems like everything is lost, when it seems like there's no hope of victory. But the message of this book over and over again is that Jesus wins. He wins at the cross through an unexpected victory over Satan and sin and death. And he wins throughout time as his kingdom continues to grow. And the good news, the gospel of his death and resurrection spreads around the world. John is writing this to suffering, beleaguered Christians. And it's a message of hope and encouragement. It should have that same effect on us today. Our moment in time may not be quite as dark or difficult, but we can certainly get discouraged by what we see going on in the world around us. But we need to remember that Jesus wins. There are no surprises for him. Everything is unfolding exactly according to plan. And in the end, Jesus wins. Finally, we need to remember that Jesus rules. Jesus is on the throne the whole world belongs to him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Sometimes Christians live as if Jesus is ruling in the spiritual realm, but not the rest of our lives. Jesus rules in the church, but not in the nation. Jesus rules in our home, but not in our community. But this book says otherwise. It all belongs to him. He rules it all. And not only that, He's enlisted us to rule and reign with him. So we have work to do. If Jesus is king of kings and he rules this world, then this world should operate according to his word. So you and I should seek to make the word of God the standard by which this world operates. And that starts in our own lives and our families and our church. But it shouldn't stop there. It should continue on out into our community and our nation and our world. So we have work to do. Lots of it. Jesus judges. Jesus wins. Jesus rules. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Lord, in our journey through this book of Revelation, we have heard time and time again that you are the judge. I pray that each person here would be 
trusting in Jesus for salvation so that when you judge, you don't see us and our own failed righteousness, but you see your own righteousness given to us by faith. And we see that you win. Help us not to be defeatist Christians. Help us to recognize that history is unfolding exactly as you have designed. And we look forward to a day when your victory is seen throughout the entire world, when all of your enemies are finally, once and for all, put under your feet. And we also hear in this book that you rule. You are ruling right now. You rule by the power of your word, and you've enlisted us to help in that process. So I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, faithful in our own lives and families and our church, that we would live according to your word, but then also that we would seek to see your word be the standard by which our world operates. We're thankful that you judge, that you win, and that you rule. Help us to remember that and to live in light of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.